Okay, guys, uh, I want to introduce to you John Knight. Um, even though my business is really pain and suffering and disability and hard stuff and death, um, I have struggled in those areas and how to put faith and, uh, and, and what I understand in my own experience into action and, and how do I face these things and how do I counsel and encourage people in, in these issues. And so um, I had the pleasure of having dinner with John a couple of years ago, and uh, he, in the course of about 30 minutes or so, opened my eyes greatly and helped me see things that I just didn't see before, and so he's been a, a great encouragement and, and a great help to me personally, and I think that he will help you guys as well. So He's the, I'm sorry, he's the Director of Development at Desiring God. Uh, it's John Piper's ministry in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, so... That's, that's who John is, among other things. Thank you, Kenan, for your hospitality and for your friendship, Kathy, for all that you've done for me and my family for being here tonight. My name is John Knight. Diane and I, my wife is Diane, and I have four children. The reason I'm here is that my oldest, Paul, is multiply disabled. He is blind, he is autistic, he is cognitively impaired, he has epilepsy, he has eating and sleeping disorders and orthopedic issues. My youngest son, Johnny, was born two months prematurely, and my wife lives with stage four breast cancer. And I want you to know that God is good in all his ways, in all his works. He is glorious beyond imagination. He delights in all the ways that he creates human beings. I did not always know that. And I want you to know that. So this will come in three parts. The early days of disability, God's glorious rescue, and then God's persistent help. First, I want to pause and to thank God and ask for his help. So, Lord, you have gathered us here for your glory and for our good. Please come, Lord. Help us see you and experience you and love you. Please help me now to make much of you for your name's sake, and for these friends. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a good boy growing up. I didn't give my parents much trouble. I didn't get detention at school. I got good grades, attended church, had decent friends. My parents could not have done a better job raising me. They had high standards. They were very attentive. They had high expectations, and yet they were also gracious and kind and godly. went to a Baptist college in Minnesota, and I did well academically, while avoiding the worst excesses of many in college. I met a beautiful girl. She attended a known church in our area. So I started to attend a known church in our area. We eventually married. We did not accumulate debt. We became members of that same church. We joined a small group. We attended Sunday school, memorized verses, and volunteered. We were the type of young couple that people say they really enjoy having at church. We ran into a little problem having children. <clears throat> Excuse me, having children. And we were surrounded by pregnant women, which would posed the question at times, when are we going to have children? And that, of course, was painful because we were trying, but we didn't share the discouragement or the pain openly. As each month passed without a pregnancy and medical professionals not being able to tell us why, the tears of disappointment came more quickly from my wife. My own bewilderment grew. This was not how it was supposed to be. Then one day those tears stopped and my bewilderment ended because the child was on the way and our long season of suffering had ended. It was about 18 months. On July 4th, 1995, this child decided to enter the world. We discovered that we had a son, a beautiful son. Diane cuddled him for a moment, then handed him over to the nurse to clean him up, and the next stage of my orderly life had begun. And then I heard those words that changed the course of my life. I think we have a problem here. There was a quality in the nurse's voice, some tone or something that caught my ear that this was not a small problem. They called in the neonatologist, and the news came. He had no eyes. So we knew immediately that he was blind. As that news came crashing over us, he became immediately interesting to the young doctors and interns and residents of that teaching hospital. And it seemed every time we turned around, there was another person poking at him, the medical tests and specialists started almost right away. The 
questions to us started right away. This wasn't what I had imagined. In fact, I had no category for it. This was a nightmare. I had heard all the gentle teasing and sometimes serious observations about what it meant to have children. Children change your life. But nobody meant this. Nobody had warned me about this. This boy would not experience the world like I experienced the world. I already didn't know how to parent. And now I was responsible for a boy I didn't understand with an issue I didn't want in a life I didn't expect. But I was his father. Now, there's something interesting about thinking oneself a good boy and then a good young man and experiencing all the benefits of following the rules for 29 years. Because there's a lot of benefits to following the rules. A kind of momentum that carried me through those first days and then weeks. The hospital chaplains, who were frankly pathetic in their attempts to provide comfort or spiritual care, would walk away amazed at the way I prayed, at the scripture I had memorized, and how I talked about God. But you go to a church like mine long enough, and you know how to do such things. Things weren't right inside of me. This wasn't right. This wasn't part of the deal I had with God. God owed me after how I had behaved. Paul was just under three months of age when we took him in for what I thought was outpatient surgery on his nose and palate. It was not complicated. The medical facility was highly regarded. The surgeons were all first rate. So we handed our baby off and we waited. A couple hours later, a very sober-looking surgeon found us in the waiting room and explained things had not gone exactly as planned. I still wasn't used to things not going as planned. Working his face and palate and nose had proceeded, but something had gone wrong. The doctor led us to the intensive care unit at Minneapolis Children's Hospital to a particular glass-encased room with a bed surrounded by monitors and lights and equipment. In the midst of all of that technology was my tiny baby boy, hooked up to more tubes and probes than I thought a body could tolerate. And something died inside of me. The good, God-fearing, rule-following, pleasant, affable man died in that moment. The lifetime momentum had finally run out. I had followed the rules my entire life, and this is what I had gotten in return. And here is how I thought. I thought this. I did not deserve this. My son certainly did not deserve this. God was still real, but he was not good. He was not kind. He was not purposeful. He was not merciful. He was not fair. He was capricious. He was cruel. He was most certainly strong, but he was not to be trusted. So I ended my association with my church, my small group, my Sunday school, took my little family away from church. I stopped listening to sermons. I stopped reading the Bible. I stopped praying. I had every intention of taking care of my son, being a responsible husband. But my life, to me, was basically over. Still, that strong desire to be known as a good person was so strong that even my drug of choice was socially acceptable. Television. Hours and hours of television. Hours of frivolity and banality pouring into my head because that was better than actually feeling what I was feeling. The anger, the bitterness, the loss of control as doctors and social workers and educators. I mean, sorry about the doctor's part, Kevin, but... <sighs> always had a better idea of what should be happening for this child. The realization that dads don't really get a say with these experts because we're too inattentive or too stupid or too in denial or too distant to have an accurate picture. To these systems, regardless of their pamphlets and their dad groups and their talk about family, I was at best a checkbook and an insurance card, and at worst, the source of even greater pain for my wife. And the culture, I began to see things I had never seen before directed at me. The pity, the sadness, and my horror at understanding that they thought I was broken and needy, which I hated. I hated even more knowing that I was even more broken and needy than they could ever begin to know. And the well-meaning but deeply flawed things people said. God only gives you what you can handle. Or you must be very special to have been given such a special child. Statements like that were like gasoline being thrown on the constant little flame of anger and anxiety I kept constantly burning in my soul. That flash of anger would sometimes spill out all over them. I was an angry, rage-filled man. Now you might be thinking to yourself, this isn't exactly the story you were expecting. We are at church, after all. Indeed, we are. The church of a bloody, suffering, abandoned, despised, maligned Savior who did not have to be any of those things. 
but in perfect obedience, in perfect agreement with the Father, pursued the glory of the Father by becoming a man. We should never forget, for those of us who cling to Jesus, that the church is the bride of the Lamb who was slaughtered. Jesus knows pain. So what happened? Clearly, Kenan would not have invited me here if I was still in that God-blaspheming, rage-filled, hopeless state. 30 years of playing, the part of the good boy would not be able to cover up that kind of despair and anger. Something must have changed. You might have noticed that everything that has preceded this was about me and how I felt and how I understood the world. And that was the problem. I interpreted everything through the lens of me. That distorted lens could take anything, including God's word, and make it about me. I was a central actor in this play. I was the creator of reality. I could predict the future. I could discern the good from the evil. And God had come up lacking. God, however, was both not impressed and not surprised by any of this. I am tempted to say that God began moving at that point, but it is clear that God had been moving me the entire time. And so the next phase of God's plan in my life began. The first thing he did was to give me a father who refused to stop loving me and who immediately understood the value of his disabled grandson as being a gift to him and to the world. I know not everyone experiences that from their dads, so I don't mean to make that a sore point. But to point out that God knew that his glory would be magnified through a man refusing to let his son slip quietly away into hopelessness and despair. That man happened to be my father. It could be anyone. The second thing God did was to have one family from our church notice that we were gone and basically adopt us into their lives. I do not to this day know exactly why, nor do I completely understand their dogged persistence. I would sit at their dining room table, enjoying extraordinary hospitality, and say vicious things about God and his ways, using my son as the evidence of his capriciousness and cruelty. And their children, ages 9 through 16, also sat at that table hearing these things. Yet they kept inviting us and praying for us and just showing up in our lives. They confounded me with their care and their concern. And they continued to love us without any evidence that anything was changing. Several years after all of this, I asked Geraldine if there was any evidence of change during those days, and she quite honestly stated, no, we saw nothing. That was humbling. I still wanted to think that maybe I had something to do with it. But the key moment came in a hospital in Indianapolis. Even though I live less than 90 miles from the Mayo Clinic, one of the finest medical, medical facilities in the world, there was no surgeon in Minnesota who could do the kind of work in my son's face that he needed. And that is how I ended up in the basement corridor of a hospital in Indianapolis thinking murderous thoughts about a doctor which I had every desire to fulfill and to which I knew I could fulfill. I was not out of control. I knew exactly what I was thinking about. It is important that you get this picture of who I was clearly in your head. I had rejected everything about God and his people and his word. I was actively hardening my heart against him and openly defying him. I removed myself from godly influences and influencers. And in that moment, with my murderous intentions, without anything in me seeking God, nobody talking to me about Jesus, God cracked me open and let me see the depths of my sinful heart without any opportunity for me to compare myself against somebody else. I had no opportunity to say I was better than anybody else. In that moment, I knew not only was I not good, I was an entirely sin-filled, violent man, separated from God, entirely lost, entirely without hope. But for Jesus. Jesus was no longer an idea, but a person, a real person, a real person with a real solution, a real person I needed. I knew I could not earn his favor. I had been given a glimpse of who I really was, but he was not asking me to earn it. He offered his grace freely. He had lived a sinless life in perfect obedience and perfect agreement with the Father's plan, and all those lost years in church for me were valuable. That knowledge was now connected to the real experience of desperate need. By grasping him in faith... My sin is transferred to him, and his righteousness is wrapped around me. So that when the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, his faithful son. So in desperation, I grabbed hold of Jesus. 
I would like to say that everything immediately became perfect and here we are. But it wasn't like that for me. My son was still disabled. In fact, we kept adding things to describe how he experiences life. The eating and sleeping issues almost from the beginning. The autism diagnosis came a little later and the cognitive issues formally diagnosed at about age six. The growth hormone deficiency at age eight. The epilepsy at 16. Today, he has orthopedic issues in his hips and knees. We haven't even gotten to my wife's health issues yet. Nothing has gotten easier over time. Nothing has gotten less expensive or less complicated over time. Nor did all my anger and pride issues immediately go away. I truly marvel at the stories of God's immediately releasing people from things like addictions to alcohol or drugs or money or rage. God has that power. God has that authority. I absolutely believe that. For me, God's path would be different. The sinful rage was still there. Now get this. I knew I had experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. I knew my sins were covered. Yet, I was angry and I was bitter, weighed down with it, in fact. Yet this little seed of affection for God had taken root, which God was nurturing. God was helping me along. Do not despise little affections for God. They are as real as big affections for God. So I returned my family to church, somewhat with my tail between my legs, because I had poked people as we left, unkindly. But I was desiring to experience this Jesus in ways I had never been desiring before. It was a year before I could get through a sermon without crying, because I knew what God had saved me from. Yet the anger was still there. I understood, really understood what Paul said in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's the Apostle Paul and me. I love the descriptor of Jesus as the great physician. We let our doctors do incredible things to us, things that really hurt us badly to help us experience improved physical health. And sometimes we as parents have to make that call for our children, knowing we will cause them great hurt on the path to something better. Jesus did that for me with my anger. Sometimes it would bubble over and I would seek to hurt people who loved me at church. Sometimes I would deny it was even there and push it down. That never lasted long. What God was doing was exposing and cutting away this cancer on my soul, the desire to have my way all the time, the desire to be in control, really the longing to be God, which was getting in the way of me experiencing God. It was bloody and painful. I didn't really want to let that anger go. And this culture tells me constantly that it is okay for me to be angry about my circumstances. But God didn't want me to have that sad, small life. He wanted me to have more of him. He wanted me to be free. God did that for me, not me. This is God's story. Yes, I had good people around me who helped steer me to God. God's word became more precious to me, and I began to understand some things I'd never understood before by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. I realized that while I had never intellectually embraced the health and wealth prosperity gospel, I certainly had done so functionally. I had put God in a little category, bound by my own definition of what is good and right and happy. My son's disabilities ruined that definition. I didn't have a category for God being good and my son being disabled. But I also didn't really have a category for me being that sinful and Jesus being for me until Jesus showed me that I was that sinful and he was for me. Though I had read the Bible most of my life, I started to read the Bible really for the first time. And it says some radical things. Like Jesus was driven by something more than determination and more than just obedience. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, in Hebrews 12, 2, for the sake of joy. We're told to look to him as our example, and because of him I could be free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, right now, free. That sounded pretty good, but could this possibly include disability? Didn't Jesus just go around healing people? Disability seems like and feels like God is either not in control or he's not good. No, God is in control, and he is good, and he is intentional about disability. Exodus 4.11 
And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? No excuses. No embarrassment. Just a statement of fact about what he chooses to do for his glory and for our good. Or John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God intentionally giving a man blindness, not as a specific consequence of his sin, but that something greater could happen, much greater. The works of God were displayed in him then and serve as encouragement to us today about who Jesus is. Or Psalm 139. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day, every rotten day of treatments and therapies and bills and loneliness are known by God. He is not surprised by any of this that we are experiencing. In fact, he is keeping a record even of your sleepless nights and your tears. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Psalm 56, 8. And he wants us to bring our whole authentic selves to him. He already knows when we're angry or bitter or doubting or troubled. We might as well admit it when we come to him. He is not afraid of this. He is not surprised by it. But I frequently come back to this point. Jesus can relate to our pain. He knows pain. And Jesus prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke 22. He knows our days. He knows our pain. He knows everything about everything. It is for a great purpose in bringing many more to him just as he experienced in the garden. Suffering has purpose. Our sufferings clear away the things that would charm us away from God. The money, the easy life, the lack of suffering tend to put our eyes on almost anything but God. But in suffering, we know we are not in charge. and We long for something better. Those things lose their ability to charm us, at least for a season. Sin is so strong in us. There is more. He doesn't just leave us in that suffering state. But he said to me, this is the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response, beautiful. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, Calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. From 2 Corinthians 12. Do you see it? In our weakness, we get something that will last forever. More of Christ's power resting on us. More of God. And this comes as a free gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship. All of us, including those we love who live with disability. The most vulnerable, weak, supposedly incapable child was created for good works. The child who is violent or depressed or doesn't have any mood at all was created by God for a good purpose. In fact, and this is what is so radical about our God, that is especially true for those the culture considers worthless. Hear how God talks about his weaker members. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, so that there's no mistake, he's saying, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. In 1 Corinthians 12, You know what indispensable means, right? It means it can't work without them. And notice the seems to be weaker phrase. Paul recognizes that in our sinful state, we will overemphasize some things. Education, money, wisdom, whatever it might be, and denigrate others. 
Yet that is not how God sees things. But God chose. I mean, listen to how many times the word choose or chose is in this phrase. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. From 1 Corinthians 1. Is life hard? Yes, this life is hard. Jesus warned us of that. Paul warned us of that. Peter warned us of that. There are days when I wake up and I do not do, want to do what I need to do to take care of my family, or more specifically, to take care of my son's needs. My heart still leans into comfort over compassion and anxiety about what is in front of me rather than clinging to God's absolute loving authority. God has been merciful to let me come to him again and again and again and again and again and to ask for help. In fact, that honors him because he is the source of all help and all good things. After asking for help and knowing that he has promised to supply all that I need, not all that I think I need, there is a difference. I get up and the day begins and I address my son's needs. To show you how radically God has done this surgery on my heart, in 1995, after the birth of my son, and only knowing that he was blind, I cursed God and took my family out of church. In October 2004, my wife was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer with meds in her spine, ribs, and limb system. We do not remember doubting his goodness or his love toward us. God had removed my heart of granite, that legal heart of granite, and replaced it with one that is soft and alive and beating. And this happened over time. He keeps showing me I have a long way to go in my sanctification. I wish I didn't have to struggle with sin as much and as hard as I do, but he has also shown a daily ability to give me what I need to fight. Disability is hard, and God is good. Disease is hard, and God is good. He's ready to help you. Maybe even tonight you've heard something that's helped you. I've encountered leaders here who love Jesus. I want you to know Jesus as well. Love that about being with the people of, of God. And maybe God might be pleased to do for you what he did for me. For a season I thought my son was a curse. Now I live in the reality that God used my son to reveal the depths of my own depravity, my desperate need for a savior, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the daily help he provides, and the desire to make him known so others can experience this life of as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. In doing so, he helped me see my son's disabilities are not a curse, but an incredible blessing because at the end of every day and because of that boy, I have been given more of God. It didn't happen for me immediately, and it didn't happen without much painful rooting out of sin in my life, but it did happen because God is good in disability, because he has purpose in disability, because he doesn't want us to cling to things that will end, but to him who will never end. He will keep all his promises to us, and he offers himself to us all freely. There's a CD out there from a conference that we did last fall called The Works of God. It has four messages on it. It has a testimony from a young woman who lives with multiple disabilities, and it has a question and answer time. I highly recommend it. I was deeply helped by that conference. And on that, that uh, CD is a message by a man named Greg Lucas. He's just a guy like me. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a trained theologian. I'm just a guy in the pews, just like Greg's a police officer, just a guy in the pews. And he makes the point that we should run to Jesus. He's absolutely right. Run to Jesus. I encourage you to listen to that one and all of them for encouragement about our God. So thank you, Kenan, for this time, this privilege of being with my extended family. I'm going to pray to close this portion, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Kenan for our question and answer time. So, Lord, thank you for these people, for their children, for their hope, for this day. Please, Lord, let us see you more clearly. Trust your promises over our perceptions to help us cling to Jesus with all our might. Please, Lord, this world is hard. We need a Savior. We need the helper you promised. Come, please, give us more of you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask him a few questions, and you guys can scratch out some questions if you have some.
if you'd like to talk to him after we get done. Um, John said he would stay here as long as, as you guys want to talk to him. Uh, he rode with me, so he has to, basically. So. <laughs> he was blindfolded before we brought him. <laughs> he has no way to get home. That's a long five blocks from here. Yeah, it's a long five blocks. Um, what are some ideas you would have for, let's say you're the friend of somebody like you and, and you know, a son or daughter's been born and there's something that's not, not okay? What would you do as that friend to minister to them? Well, we were given some really good examples. I referenced two of the examples. Um, as much as we are hard on Job's friends because they didn't perform so well, they did one thing really well. They came for the first seven days and they wept. They were present with him in his sorrow. Um, knowing the right words is not as important as presence. And there's a couple of things that I've learned. Um, first of all, to pray hard. Lord, if you have a word for me to give to them, please have the Holy Spirit come and, and give a helpful word. And Lord, if I really blow it, just don't let them even hear it. Because the Holy Spirit is that powerful to keep bad words from being held against us and having good words land and be fertile. And the second is to come with some Bible verse, something, so that folks that may be ready for prayer might be ready to engage God in more helpful ways than I was, then you're ready. And you're not trying to think of, well, what might be the right Bible verse here? You, you pause and consider. Again, ask the Holy Spirit's help. It's, the Bible's a big book. There's lots of good verses in it. What might God have given you? I've, I've got some interesting stories there, but I'll... For time, I'll hold off. So what were the Bible verses that people shared with you? Uh, honestly, I can't remember. It was more the fact that they trusted that God's word was true and the fact that they kept showing up. So the things my dad did was he just treated my son like all of his other grandchildren. It, there was no category of grandchildren and disabled. There was just grandchildren. And he had special regard for this particular grandchild because it was namesake. My dad is Harlan Paul. My son is Paul Harland. And so for lots of reasons, he just swept in and understood that this boy was a gift. And I, I do remember one thing that he said. Polly was two days old. Um, and Dad came, and he, he had tubes and stuff even then. And he's holding him, and he said, if the only reason I was put on this earth was to be your grandpa, that's good enough for me. And okay. Okay. So what was it your dad said right after you called him? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it won't sound consequential, but it, it really meant something to me. I said, Dad, Paul Harland is here, and he's blind. My mother disintegrated into tears, which is appropriate. <laughs> and my dad said, it's going to be okay, son. Now, having known the man for 30 years, almost 30 years at that point, he'd lost his dad to cancer when he was 17. Uh, he lost the farm when he was in his early 20s. My, my parents had lost three children in miscarriage, had hardship in business. Had, it was not an easy life, my dad said. So when he was saying, it's going to be okay, it meant, son, I'm with you. Nothing is going to keep me from being with you in this. And when I say it's okay, I mean, it's going to be okay because I'm going to be there. My dad is a man of faith. I was the legalist in the family. My dad didn't teach me that. I taught that all on my own. My dad is a God-fearing man who didn't have the chance to go to college. But because he read the Bible so many times, he, got, he gets invited to, to preach on occasion. <laughs> he loves the word so much. So a man of his character saying that to me meant everything to me. And so even after I left church and you know, dad was praying for me, whatever you want to do, dad, I still was longing for that. What were things that were not helpful that you remember that were like, <laughs> don't do that again? <laughs> well, I, I mentioned a couple of them. You know, you're so special um, to have been given such a special child. Thing. Uh, I did not sign up for that class. You know, I worked really hard in college. Uh, I worked really hard in graduate school. got good grades. I wanted to be special that way based on my own merit. This was not the kind of special I was looking for. Um, I, I will share the, the one story. John 9, I read a portion of it. There was a series of weeks that people would come and just offer that as comfort. It was not comforting at the time. I was in my rage state still, you know, saved and angry. That's, mm -hmm. Those are not two things that can live well together. So that's why there was such 
disharmony within my soul. And when they would raise that, I would be thinking, well, that's fine. He got his sight. My son doesn't even have any eyes. And while I believe that God heals in this present age, it is not normative. So I was not expecting that my son would ever have sight. And so it, it became this kind of scratching at a, at a wound rather than being helpful. Most of the time, I just wanted to be at church and have people like me and not cause too many problems. So I was just trying to get out of the conversation. But there were times I said, okay, you think that's helpful? I'm going to make you bleed. And it would be rhetorically, of course, and I would take out the tongue and I would cut them into little tiny slices. And then I would stomp all over the bloody slices that were on the floor, rhetorically. I was a very cruel man. Um, But what God had in mind was that eventually I'd get fed up and I would email my pastor, (laughs) say, I'm fed up with this. Uh, My son will not experience this healing. This is not helpful. Why didn't Jesus just say to that man, you're blind and you're saved and you're great? Why do I have to put up with this? And my pastor very kindly took me to the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians, who prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be removed, and it was not. And the Holy Spirit came and said, okay, see. And I saw. I could see the contrast. This was for God's glory, and this was for God's glory. The pain that Paul was experiencing was for God's glory and for his good. The relief that this man experienced was for God's glory. Okay. (laughs) But for, I mean, if you are going to, to... offer something to someone who is in a suffering state, they might come back at you really hard and really angry. And in that moment, you need to decide who's really strong here. God's really strong here. What do I have to be afraid about? What is God up to? Because I know there are probably people walking away thinking, "Um, no, Lord, I know you said the word never returns void, but I think I just experienced the word returning void not knowing that it would be maybe a month or two months or six months later that the Holy Spirit would intervene. And now it is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible to me, that which I hated. Those folks couldn't know that in that moment. They needed to trust that the Holy Spirit really had given it to them to offer to another hurting soul who then came back at them with such cruelty and that they would rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ to cover them if they sinned and to provide them comfort that they were acting in faith. And whatever the response was, was not in their control. At least that's how I hope it was. That's what I advise you. (laughs) So how was your response when your wife was diagnosed? What did that look like as far as what went through your Oh, my. Well, um, I mean, the, the immediate response, of course, is how can she have cancer? She's not even 40 years old. And how can she have stage 4 cancer? How is this possible? So... All the natural reactions were coming, too. But rather than run away from the church, our first response was to run to the church. And I I tell folks, if I could have afforded it, I would have put billboards up saying, pray for Diane Knight. I I don't even really care what you believe. Just pray, because I believe that the God who hears prayer will (laughs) will hear your prayers. Um, And I I think that was just evidence that God had, had changed me and had changed her, too, that Yes, this, this was in many ways even harder because we were now looking at eternity. We weren't just looking at maybe 60 years of taking care of this boy and then we die and his siblings have to take care of him. This was, she's on the edge. And statistically, she still is. Um, but we, we didn't rage. It was, you know, help us fight this. Help us. You know, the, the, whole, the whole point of James where he said, Gather the elders together. Have them pray. Anoint with oil. We did that. Um, because we believe. We believe that God can move. In fact, my, my pastor, again, did two very important things. He looked at me and said, how are you doing? I said, not so good. And he said, that's the right response. <laughs> so he affirmed that in this natural broken state, sorrow over hard things is the right response. Um, my pastor doesn't like chipper. He hates chipper. He loves joy, but he hates chipper. And he looked at my wife and he said, you know that you've already passed from death to life. And I lost it at that point because that sounded to me like the death sentence. We're all understanding that stage four cancer, you know, tumor, all that. And then he said these words. This is almost verbatim. 
and we will fight for you. We will fight for you with prayer. We will bring every resource of the church for you because it is good for a mother to raise her children. It is good for a husband to have a wife. So, as sorrowful, yes, she could die, and always rejoicing. We will fight. And God has seen fit to give us eight years rather than the 18 months that we expected. And one more thing. When, when I say resources, I mean they, did, they brought every resource of the church into it. Our leaves got raked. The sidewalk got shoveled. We had meals delivered three times a week for nine months. We had uh, two women organize the meals three times a week for nine months so that we weren't getting phone calls saying, who's allergic to what, what have you had? And, and they were spacing it out so we didn't have lasagna six times in a row. You know, what happens when people... <laughs> and, you know, that, that both the practical of, of these, these... I would just look out my, my front window because sometimes it would be these dear young couples. And, and you, you who are married, you know what I'm saying. When you're first married, they're just cute, right? Everything is good. There's this sort of glow around them. And they're coming to the door of a house with a mom who might die and a child who is multiply disabled. Because the boy was still multiply disabled while she was going through treatment. I didn't change. I mean, what kind of courage did that take? I mean, what? Honestly, you're, you're in the, the throes of this bliss, and now you're going to go into what could be a very, very black place. And yet they came, and more experienced folks came. And they'd all been trained really well. They basically delivered the meal and said a blessing and then left. They didn't. <laughs> One of the things that struck me when we uh, had dinner a couple years ago was you were talking about um, this lady would come by and do drive-bys. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, she was the wife of the couple that adopted us. So I'd be sitting at their table saying this, these horrendous things. Extraordinary hospitality. Extraordinary cook extraordinary in lots and lots of different ways. We, we both live in St. Paul, but St. Paul is long and narrow, so we were, we were a good 20 minutes apart. And yet, ironically, Geraldine would be just driving by with freshly baked bread or driving by with um, uh, pasties, you know, the meat-filled stuff that she had made, or pierogies that she had made. The one that got me uh, one day, she driving by, it was soap. And shampoo. It was, it was smelly stuff. Dandy doesn't even remember this happening. But why in the world do you have soap and smelly stuff? Well, it was one woman recognizing the other woman is still an attractive, feminine person who might appreciate another woman giving her smelly soap, which she did. So it, it was... <laughs> and then she would come in and give us the four spiritual... She never did anything like that. She was just driving by, wanted you to have this, love you, goodbye. It never ended without love you, Goodbye. No matter how we had behaved, no matter how I had behaved, my wife was more socially acceptable than me. But the love was spread across the entire family. So it was, yes, spiritual care. They were praying for us earnestly. But it was also these, these moments of we recognize you as our friends. We recognize you as people who might like freshly baked bread. We recognize you as someone who's important to us. And, you know, the drive-by stopped after a while. So what about your uh, other two sons and your daughter? How does, <laughs> how does this all affect? What does it look like for them? Well, we've, I say that this is kind of a funny way to put it, but I say, we have the advantage that Polly is our oldest, and the other three came after. So all they have known is disability. Um, I have many friends now who have disabled children who came in the reverse order, and it, it's a different kind of family dynamic. In our household... There is she who can do no wrong, and that is Paul's younger sister. And by she can do no wrong, she, in his eyes, she literally can do no wrong. So she taught him how to take pills. Twelve-year-old girl taught her brother how to take pills. He had never chewed anything in his life. He has all kinds of oral aversive stuff going on, and he basically said, well, if Hannah wants me to take pills, I guess I'll take pills. And so today, he, he takes nine pills a day. Thanks be to God for that, that young woman. From a very early age, she had regard for her brother. Uh, she was no more than three. We were at a bakery. I had the baby um, and Polly, and I couldn't handle everything. So I said to Paul, he was about six at that time, and 
one of the one of the kind of weird blessings of autism and cognitive issues and blindness together is he tends to stay put. <laughs> so I said to him, Paulie, I'll be right back, as I saw a table open up, and I hear this little three-year-old voice say, Daddy, wait for us. She had taken her brother by the hand, and she was taking him through this crowd of adults. Now, when she was about eight or nine, <laughs> and we're kind of a, we're one of those families that people will stare at because Paulie has some typical autistic behaviors, the flapping of the hands, and sometimes he'll vocalize. And I noticed when Hannah was probably about eight that she started to notice other people noticing. And I saw that look that I used to have, which was that anger behind the eyes and uh, just needing to lead her in that sense. Sweetie, they're ignorant. They don't understand. They don't understand what a gift Paulie is. With kids, she would get it. She She was very accommodating to children. But her direct quote to me about adults was, Dad, they should know better. She's absolutely right, of course. But we live in this culture, and I had to, I had to train her up that, <laughs> no, um, not everyone's going to know that, and no, you can't go kill them um, or take them out. Now, she might be small, but, you know, you mess with her brother. She'll take you out. And, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, the other two boys... Very typically developing boys, but, you know, they, they help. Uh, my 12-year-old in particular helps Polly get to the toilet. And, you know, they, they have to help their 17-year-old brother do things that other 9- and 12-year-old boys don't need to do. And, and they do it. It's just how we do. So what do you do when you're out of energy to do the hands-on care? <laughs> That's why there's two of us to begin with. And the Lord has been very, very gracious to us. Our network of people who know us and who love us and will do things for us is significant. It, it requires, you know, as an American male, gay men, uh, we're strong, we're independent, we make good decisions, we, we don't have weaknesses. If we have weaknesses, they're kind of the weaknesses that are socially acceptable. I have to lay it all out. I don't have any other choice. Say, I can't do this. I, I don't have it. And to other men. And ironically, they don't think ill of me. That's, that's the real irony of this, is that the sort of the, the embarrassing early days where I said, I, I can't do this unless you help me. And then when Diane's cancer came, I wasn't embarrassed anymore. <laughs> like, can you do something? Good. Okay, here's the chart. Because <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. There's a few things I can do, and those things I have to do. There are other things that need to, to happen that I can't do. So um, it's, it's important for us to get into our heads who is for us. God is for us. Why is God for us? Because he chose us in love. And Jesus came and paid for our sins. So the big question has been answered. We are weak. We are needy. <laughs> and what we need to do then is admit that to each other. And Sometimes that's more emotional than it is. I mean, I've had financial problems because disability is really expensive. And, you know, just here it is. I I got nothing to hide because I know who's for me. And you might think I'm foolish or stupid or weak or incompetent or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to be with Jesus someday. And if you can help me right now, that would help, help me. Could you give any advice as far as dealing with the medical establishment with people like me and all those people at the hospital? <laughs> well, uh, I didn't know how the game was played when my son was born. There, there's a practical element of how is this game played? And there's, there's a very powerful thing. Saying, I'm his father. Stop doing that. I didn't realize I could say that. Um, we've been very, very blessed to have mostly good doctors. We have unfortunately not had the same experience with social workers. I have not yet had a good experience with a social worker. So there's the common grace that God has given us of sort of rights that we have with systems. And when they begin to behave badly, I say things like, you're breaking the law. Let's all not do that now. And then they think, oh, he knows what his rights are. (laughs) With doctors... Um, we make it as easy as we can on the doctors. So we, we keep 
information on poly. We try and go to the same professionals. We go to ones that are highly recommended, not just by referring physicians, but by our networks. And then we, we come in ready to give them the whole story, you know, not hold anything back. Um, and occasionally we've had to fire doctors just because they weren't very good. And to recognize doctors can sometimes not be very good. We can edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, is that what you were getting at? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I editorial comment. I do see that folks kind of start out with like they don't know the game of being sick, and then they go through you know levels and levels and you know months and years and surgeries and so forth, and they become what I call medically hardened, which is kind of the you know I, I can I know that look when I walk in the room like oh it's somebody you know it's folks that have just had a bad experience you know and maybe a whole bunch of bad experiences so. We've had that in my family too, so I'm I'm right there with you guys. I try not to do that myself. But. Well, and we we have to also recognize that when when we are oriented, again, we're Americans here. We we live in this this culture where we fix things. So you know, medic, medicine can fix things, right? Wrong. <laughs> we're all going to die. The bodies are going to are going to fail at some point, and so. Do we use the resources that God has given us as best we can? Yes, we should. We should. One of the things that infuriated me was when, when Diane got the cancer was suddenly kind of out of the cracks came folks who were willing to sell us things that would fix her under the guise of sort of Christian, this is how God meant the cells to work, so if you put this amino acid in, it'll work that way. And my mother-in-law was so desperate that she bought some of that stuff. Now, my wife was, okay, I got this stuff. Mom paid for it. It was like 1200 bucks for this you know, few jars. She went to her oncologist and said, should I be taking this stuff? And he burst out laughing. First, because, you know, hardly anyone tells me they're doing it, and I know most people are. And, no, they aren't going to hurt you, but they aren't going to help you. So that, that transparency with the left and the right hand should know what's going on so we can use the common graces of medicine to its full benefit rather than, well, I'm drinking eight gallons of carrot juice, but I won't tell Dr. Kirkendall because he might find that strange. Um, I know the orange people when they come in. <laughs> I already know you guys. Okay? You're not hiding any carrot juice from me. Um, if, we can, if we can, you know, open that up into, you know, is this wise? And then you can say, well, it ain't going to hurt you, but it's not going to help. Um. <laughs> okay, if you guys have any questions, I'll pick those up. And if you want to talk to John afterwards, I'll keep him here as long as I can. <laughs> well, uh, the question is, how did my wife respond to our son when he was born? And then how did she respond to my lack of leadership, or how did I respond to my lack of leadership? <laughs> well, at the point where I had rejected God and the people of God, I didn't really care. You know, what was leadership? Leadership was getting up in the morning, going to work, paying the bills, and then watching television for eight hours or six hours or however long it was. I wasn't mean to her. Um, in fact, we usually would sit together and watch television for six or eight hours. Um, but that's not leadership. That was just sort of being in physical proximity with, with each other. I needed the heart transformation. <laughs> I needed God to crack me open. <laughs> I needed God to give me a different kind of hope and a different kind of eyes to see. Um, when we left church, she walked out right with me. It wasn't sort of a begrudging kind of thing. We were both feeling many of the same things. And that was not the fault of our church. I go to a good church that preaches uh, a biblical view of God, the sovereignty of God, you know, the necessity of Jesus Christ, Legalism isn't going to get you anywhere. But I, 10 years, 10 years I sat in those pews. So one of the things I, 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 uh, I think I both discourage and encourage pastors with is you probably got them in your church. You probably do. They look great because I look great. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I look how I am. I get that. I'm no specimen here. But in terms of showing up and being the kind of churchgoer that you like, I was that and not saved.
yet today I am. So, pastors, even if you have a whole bunch of them in your church, might it be that God would give you a whole bunch that their eyes become open and they say, I spent my entire life at this church and I did not know God. And now I know God. Wow, this is, this is the coolest place in the world to go and learn about God. And they start talking about God in an entirely different way, wanting to learn about God in an entirely different way. There's some kind of an energy around it. And also, you know what happens. The evil one will attack them. The evil one will seek to discourage them. The culture will hate them. And their own sin will start to rise up. So they're going to have different kind of battles. So we've had different kind of battles over the years too. What does good leadership mean? Frankly, I have to work at it. It's not one of those natural things where, oh, I can lead my wife well. I have to read good books and, <laughs> you know, consider with her, am I doing the right stuff here? And she tells me things like, no, you kind of blew it with our daughter today. And, you know, that, that's helpful so that I can be the kind of man that, that she deserves and I can be a better father. But it, that's one of those things too. It took time and mostly it was the heart change of God wanting me to be that because I didn't want to be that. You know, you've dealt with uh, two very different types of disease processes. <laughs> um, at what what point do you do you balance the the look for a cure, the look for uh, some type of solution to the yeah. issues, and then uh, then also balance that reliance on God? What I think more more of the question is what what how do you balance looking for the cure yeah. and not get just stuck on that? That's an excellent question, and I'm not sure I ever quite hit the right balance. Um, with my son, it's fairly simple, actually. When he started having seizures, we wanted the seizures to stop. Seizures are bad. We can do something about seizures. Can't do a whole lot about blindness when the boy doesn't have any eyes. So that one's simple. The cognitive issues, can't do a whole lot about that. We can do the things that are good for him in terms of how he learns and how he develops and language and all that kind of thing. But the severity of his disability was, was frankly helpful. With Diane's cancer, we had to weigh all the stuff that's out there. And the thing that we hopefully did well, but don't do, you know, you can always do it better, is who's done this before? So some of the, the best helps that my wife had were women who had walked through breast cancer. And to talk about things like, oh, yes, these particular people at church will probably be contacting you about their crap. Oh, is it okay for us to say no? I would actually suggest that you say no. <laughs> and if you need someone to run cover for you, we can run cover for you. That's helpful. Parents who are a little bit ahead of us, or sometimes a lot ahead of us, in terms of various processes, um, going through guardianships. For example, we have parents who have gone ahead of us with guardianship for us. He's going to turn 18. And basically, you do not want this boy having the ability to sign contracts or vote. It would be very bad for all of us if, if that were to happen. Um, and that I get to take care of it. That's what I want. People have gone ahead of us and given us good advice. And I lean into the ones who are godly people rather than the ones who are not godly people. Uh, is it perfect? No, we don't have perfect information on anything. But... The fact that we know that God is for us and we know that God uses means. He uses the means of people. He uses the means of medicine. He uses... So we are given the opportunity to say, Lord, is this the right decision? I'm not even sure, but we're going to take this step in faith and if it's not, you're going to help us, right? And having this sort of constant, yeah, God helps us. And I've probably made every mistake. Well, not every mistake possible. I keep finding new ones that I can make. I've made lots and lots of mistakes. And God has helped us. He's redeemed some really rotten things that I've done or missed. Um, so, we, you know, it, it's good to have people around you to say, hey, has anyone experienced cancer here? You have, can I talk to you? Has anyone experienced disability here? Can I talk to you? And to get the, the perspective of a medical professional, get the perspective of a parent, get the perspective of someone who has lived it. And all through that filter, Lord, is there wisdom here? Or is there, is there not? And then we, we do it imperfectly, but we, Lord, our hands are open. I'm not exactly sure either, so let me say this to encourage you. God bless you for being involved with that family, because that is an encouragement. Even when you can't see it, 
That's an encouragement. When people show up, that's an encouragement. Fibromyalgia is horrible. Someday our bodies won't have that anymore. And that takes a toll on the spirit as well as the, the physical body. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that there is a, a shorter temper, a shorter fuse. One of the things that has been helpful for me is recognizing that God understands deeply these limitations, does not condone sinful behavior if it has landed in that category, but is ready to help redeem even that. So when there are the little... um, There's a great hymn writer by the name of William Cowper who struggled with depression his entire life. He was a friend of of John Newton's, the amazing grace guy. And... uh, um, you know, suicidal even. Say, well, how could that be? How could he be one of the redeemed <laughs> but have these really hard things happening? Part of it was because he could say with great clarity to you and to the world, this life is hard and it is not as it's supposed to be. This is evidence of it. I don't want to yell at my daughter. I don't want to, but I'm tired. I hurt. And she's loud. And Ah, there is that great representation of we have not yet experienced the fullness that we will experience someday. And none of us has gone through a day without sinning. It is in our very DNA. That's why we have to fight against it so much. So she is a living, breathing example of one who desires to do the good and finds it difficult to do, as the Apostle Paul did as well. So the encouragement, Lord willing, is, uh, well, there's a book that I can recommend, When the Darkness Does Not Lift, by John Piper. Uh, I think it's free (laughs) on the Desiring God website, uh, where he explores this issue of the darkness just isn't lifting. Am I really saved? Am I really part of the the family? There can be answers where that is yes. Yes, you are. It is part of how God has constitutionally made you to show his strength and his grace and his power. We want to be very gentle with people who are suffering. Not kid gloves kind of gentle, but sort of firm gentle. That I, I love you with great regard, and I feel your pain when you, um, when you yell at your daughter. I know you don't want to do this. Can I pray with you about that? I will, I will fight with you on this. The, the game is not over. She's still breathing. Her daughter's still breathing. So I, I don't know if there's anything in there, any wisdom in there. But any time, when I was in my worst state and I would be angry at the people who were actually trying to help me, <laughs> um, I can say today that God was moving. Couldn't see it at the time. I think you could basically write off 1995 and 1996. So maybe she has to write off 2008 to 2022. But think in terms of eternity. Someday that will be so far in her rear view mirror. So today we fight. Today we go hard after God. Today we trust that God is for you. And then when tomorrow comes, God will give grace for tomorrow. Not simple. Not simple. It it requires a firmness on your part too to keep showing up and to to spread out uh, the opportunity to see uh, what God might be pleased to do. And then we pray earnestly and we pray expectantly as well that God would help. Well, there's also the sense of we're going to die someday. Somebody's got to take care of the boy. So there's a little bit of a balance in there. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that I could say, oh, here, here was the day and we both signed the contract that we were okay with this. Um, there was certainly the sense that God was for us. And we wanted to have more children. And then God gave us a child, and God took that child away. She, she miscarried after Polly. And then God gave us Hannah, who is just the delight of my heart and loves her brother and is unembarrassed by him and has her friends over. And, you know, and he's still doing the hand flapping and the vocalization. Um, not every family gets that either. I think 
we were given this gift to this particular girl. <laughs> and then once we had her, God, well, why not? And then, well, why not? And I, I think if, if the cancer hadn't come, uh, we were approaching our 40s at that point, we would have considered adoption. But uh, cancer kind of took all the rest of them. Look at the three things that want to bring us down, our own sin and Satan and the world. So, yeah, you think you're so great with that God stuff? I remember when. Now, thankfully, I'm with a group of people who remember when and just delight that it's changed. (laughs) Whoa, do we remember when? (laughs) Uh, Which is humbling in an entirely different way. (laughs) Um, There's there's this thing um, Pastor John has taught me called gutsy guilt. So, yes, I really did that. I'm really guilty of it. I really am. And I really hurt other people. I really did that. And I really was a bad husband. And I really was a bad father. And I'm still limited <laughs> today. And yet, do I believe the promises of God? Do I believe that his promises are greater than my perceptions? If I believe that, then what I did has been accounted for. And when somebody says to me, well, I kind of remember you, say, absolutely right you remember me because that's who I was. You are absolutely right. And there are days I still struggle with that. That, that little seed of rage, you know, I... I look at it instead of killing it. And then the little drop falls on it and it starts to grow a little bit. It's still there. I have to kill it. I have to kill it. So you're absolutely right. You're not telling me anything I don't know. But, well, who are you? I am God's. I am a blood-bought son of God. And God has said in his book, go out and do stuff. Don't stay in your guilt. Guilt's been taken care of. If you stay there, you are saying that your guilt is greater than God's power. And if you're saying that, you are the most arrogant person on the planet. Because God has said, I took care. Uh, Father, thank you for these people, Lord, and for the spirit in this place and for the other issues that haven't been raised here tonight. Lord, we do long for you to return. We long for the new heaven and the new earth. We long not to have any more broken bodies and no more cancer and no more pain and no more little boys who can't talk, little girls who can't run. Lord, and best of all, no more sin. Lord, we want that. Would you come, Lord? Please, Jesus, come back. But until that time, Lord, give us strength. Give us strength to lay down our arms before our brothers and sisters talk about how needy we are with each other and then to pick up godly arms together, link godly arms together, say now we will go forward in faith with each other for the sake of the body to magnify the name of Jesus Christ and to help each other no matter what it might be. Please, Lord, let us recognize that the weakest members among us are indispensable to the body so much so that we want to go looking for them. And when we find them in our own places of worship, Lord, that we give them special honor, as you said we should. Please, Lord, help us to be servants to each other, knowing that you will provide all that we need. Every day, you will give us the strength. Every day, you will give us the hope. Every day, you will cover our sins. And we can rise, and we can do work that you have given us to do, the good works that you have given us to do, Lord. Please, I ask in Jesus' name.